If life is a mystery, who done it? Welcome to a special edition of Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. As of my recording this on January 8th, 2023, the 39th president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, at age 98, has opted for hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia, where he lives with his loving wife of over 75 years, Rosalind. Today, I'm joined by journalist and historian and documentarian Jonathan Alter. He is also the author of His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life, which is the result of numerous interviews with our most religious of presidents and the gold standard for ex-presidents. Stay tuned, and afterwards, I'll be getting a few thoughts on Jimmy Carter from Emmy winner Ken Burns, who is going to be a guest on an upcoming episode of Ye Gods. Jonathan Alter, my friend, thank you for being here at Ye Gods. Thanks for having me, Scott. I, I can think of no better person to talk about Jimmy Carter. Your book, His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life, which was written in published in, you worked on it for many, many years, but it was published in in uh, in 2020. And I remember getting it very early and it being my faithful companion through many evenings. It's a long book, but you reacquainted me with, with so many different aspects of American life. It was during my young adulthood that he was rising politically and then served and then, and then was defeated for his second term by Ronald Reagan. You say in the introduction that you think he's America's most misunderstood president. How so? Well, you know, the easy shorthand on Jimmy Carter is weak president, saintly, former president. And that's just so inadequate and really in many ways misleading. When you're a former president, you don't have any real power. And he's done a lot. He's been very inspiring and helping eradicate, nearly eradicate a couple of important diseases and standing up for democracy and building houses once a year with Habitat for Humanity, uh, which I I spent time with them on a work site in Memphis in 2016. So I saw that up close. But you don't get as much accomplished out of office as you do in office. And his presidency has been really almost completely misunderstood. So he was a political failure. As you mentioned, he was defeated for re-election by Ronald Reagan by a substantial margin, made plenty of political mistakes, but he was a substantive and even far-sighted success. And he actually signed more major pieces of legislation in four years than either Bill Clinton or Barack Obama did in eight years, not to mention Republican presidents. So there's a a lot to chew on in his presidency, but I was as struck by this epic American life that he led growing up in the Jim Crow South and having a series of adventures really unlike that of any other 20th century figure. And so I was actually kind of astonished that he hadn't been uh, better chronicled. And it was one of the reasons why I undertook this book. Well, you say that that Carter is undeniably the most religious president that America has had. And and I think a lot of people are familiar with him quoting scripture and teaching Sunday school. And I know you saw him one time do that. Was his religion part of his life from his 
very young years all the way through his adulthood? Or were there times where he had doubts and 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 relapses in his faith? Uh, it's the latter. You know, he was raised in a tiny town in southwest Georgia, uh, baptized Southern Baptist like everybody in that area. His father was a white supremacist. His mother was a very busy nurse who took care of black patients for free, and she wasn't around much. So he was raised in large part by an illiterate black farmhand named Rachel Clark, who really taught him, by his account, much of his faith, as well as his love of nature, which led him to being one of the great environmentalists presidents in American history. And that fusion between faith and nature was very important to him growing up. And then when he was at the Naval Academy, he was uh, teaching Sunday school. Uh, When he returned to Plains, Georgia, after leaving um, the nuclear Navy, nuclear-powered submarines that he helped develop in the most innovative tech project for the middle part of the 20th century. But when his father died, he returned to tiny Plains, Georgia, and he took up his father's responsibilities, which included being a deacon in the Plains Baptist Church. But it was a segregated church that, at the height of the civil rights movement, not only did it not allow any black members, which it didn't do really until Carter was president and he had left the church to start a new integrated church in the late 1970s, Not only did they not allow black members, things got so bad, they didn't even allow black people to enter the church. And Carter tried to do something about that and failed, uh, was outvoted. And right around that time, he suffered a, uh, a crisis of faith. He had lost for governor of Georgia in 1966, and he wasn't sure why, why God had let him lose to this horrible racist Lester Maddox. And he described what he called God's mysterious ways as confusing him. And he, he lost some of his faith, but he, from his reading and in consultation with his sister, who was a, an evangelist, he uh, underwent what was described when he ran for president as a born-again experience. It didn't happen suddenly it was over time and he had already been studying christian theology deeply and he you know he was he read karl barth and martin buber and paul tillich and hans kung and he was really inspired by dietrich bonhoeffer who i think as people remember was the german pastor who was killed by the nazis uh, just before the end of world war ii and carter uh, later wrote that Bonhoeffer's courage made him feel inadequate as a Christian, and but it also inspired him. And Bonhoeffer had famously said that faith without works is not faith at all, but a simple lack of obedience to God. And that might be as close as Jimmy Carter had to a personal philosophy. So he didn't believe that there was a connection between service and salvation, that if you served, you would get into heaven. Carter never believed that. He didn't think that people who worked with the poor got into heaven faster, but he did believe that Christ 
example of uh, self-sacrifice and embracing the uh, the dispossessed, you know, was the model that he he should follow. And he also, you know, he read. I think it was pretty well known when he ran for president that he he read Reinhold Niebuhr and he quoted him often in his speeches. And Niebuhr famously wrote that the sad duty of politics is to establish justice in a sinful world. And that's really what Carter used as his explanation of why he entered politics. And when he first ran for state Senate in in Georgia, not long after his uh, his deep reading in theology, um, he was told by a minister he respected, you know, why are you doing this? Politics is a dirty business. And he basically said, well, I can have a, you know, a congregation of X thousand, however many constituents he had at the time. So that gives you some idea of how he viewed it. But then after he lost that race, Scott, for governor in 1966, he had this crisis and, and he went to a pretty deep place and he was depressed. And one of his ways out of it was he volunteered for missions in the North. So he went to Lock Haven, Pennsylvania and Springfield, Massachusetts for a couple of weeks each. And he went door to door for Jesus. And he met other missionaries who helped restore his faith. And he had many adventures in that period. The one I thought was the most compelling was when they happened upon a knock on the door of an apartment and it turned out it was a brothel. And they, they went in and sat by Carter's description for a couple of hours with the madam and they tried to bring her to Christ. And she told them, well, come back tomorrow and I'll give you my decision. So they came back the next day and she said, I'm not ready to sin no more. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is interesting to me because the faith that you're describing is much more assuming an active deity's interaction in, in earthly affairs. I know a, a lot of people who believe in God, but don't necessarily think that there's a, a vested interest from the divine in getting certain things, uh, laws passed, or getting the outcome of individual events on earth, but that the God is a is someone who gives people in inside I, I, interior strength, but not necessarily that he's going to be rigging the playing field or or helping certain outcomes. But Carter seems, by what you're describing, Carter seems to have had that. So when he loses to Lester Maddox, he's almost, it's almost a disappointment with God. It was at the time, but then as his faith developed after his born again experience, the faith that he took to the governorship and the presidency was very much not related to specific outcomes. He prayed many times a day sometimes as often as a hundred times a day for guidance and strength, not for particular outcomes. But then, you know, and this is what he described to me when we were discussing his faith. And I spent many hours with Jimmy Carter over a period of five years. So he, this is the way he would describe, describe it. But then remember after Carter got sick in, 2015, and he 
developed metastatic melanoma that spread to his brain. And he was told that he might only be alive for another few weeks. He was cured by a drug called Keytruda, uh, which has been radio immunotherapy that has been very helpful. It's almost a kind of a wonder drug in cancer. And so I asked him after he recovered, I said, was this Keytruda that did this? And his answer to me kind of contradicted what we had talked about earlier. He said he preferred to credit prayer. So he <laughs> was praying for recovery, even he, even as he was at peace with whatever God decided for him in terms of when he would die. So this is interesting to me because what it seems to you're, you're saying, tell me if I'm wrong, that he had this one notion early in his political career, but he evolved. Am I then understanding correctly that he would not have suffered that same confusion and depression after he was defeated by Ronald Reagan? Right. Actually, Rosalind's depression was significant after the loss to Reagan. And Carter also was in a, a funk, but I, I think he came out of it when he realized that he could start what became the Carter Center and do good in the world as a former president. And, you know, he redefined what the post-presidency was. And I think the the best way to understand Carter is really comes from the Methodist tradition. So Rosalind, his wife, so she was raised a Methodist and she later after she got married at Plains Baptist Church, she became a Baptist. But as you know, the, the, the Methodist admonition from John Wesley, the, the founder of Methodism, is do all the good you can in all the ways you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. And that is what guides Jimmy Carter. And that's what motivated him after he, you know, after he left the presidency was to continue to do good works to better uh, the lives of, of other people. And it was very, very grounded in his faith. Even just going through the index of your book last night, reacquainting myself with some of the highlights of it, but there are a lot of index um, citations, Carter's aloofness, Carter stubbornness and righteousness, Carter competitiveness. Um, th th there are a lot of qualities about him that we didn't necessarily see. We remember the smile, I think, as he's pounding with a hammer on, on a house for somebody, or if he's overseeing voting in, in some foreign country. You, you, you wrote that he had a sense of obligation to God. And, and it's interesting to me how this played out. You saw him teach Sunday school in Plains. What was that like? So he was not preaching. He was teaching. And by the way, the tapes of his Sunday school lessons from Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia are available online. And look, I'm Jewish. So it didn't, these Sunday school lessons didn't always, you know, hit home for me, but they, in many ways they did. I mean, they had a kind of an economical quality to them. There were people from all over the world who would cram into this tiny church. After he got sick in 2015, people would camp out all night 
to hear him teach Sunday school. I saw him do it three times. And every time uh, the lessons were very well prepared. Uh, one time I had dinner with him on Saturday night and he left early and I assumed it was because he was over 90 and he was going home to go to sleep. And actually when he excused himself, it was to go home and work on his Sunday school class. He often favored teaching about St. Paul, but there were others that were about the Old Testament. And as he described it to me, what led to his renewed faith was an understanding that in his mind, God never changes, that the God of the Creator, the Old Testament, was the same God of love in the New Testament. I mean, I would quibble with him because I think too often Christians think that the Old Testament is without love and they, they haven't read the Song of Solomon. You know, they, they're not, I think, familiar enough with certain portions of the Old Testament, but it's a familiar myth, misunderstanding. Carter, who was so well-versed in scripture, explain in really clear and often entertaining ways. And anybody who ever saw him in action in small groups, which is where he was at his best, wasn't very good on TV. You know, couldn't measure up to Ronald Reagan on TV, but in small groups in places like Iowa, where he, you know, won the Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire, he was just enormously compelling, whether he was giving a Sunday school class or asking for your vote. So at the church, did he take questions? Did, did people raise their hand? Yes. The first thing he did was to ask where everyone was from. And it was astonishing where folks had come from, literally all over the world. People would make a pilgrimage you know, he and Rosalind did everything at this church. So Ros Rosalind vacuumed the sanctuary. One day, um, some years ago, a man drove onto the grounds of Maranatha Baptist Church and saw a man um, mowing the lawn and asked, is this where Jimmy Carter teaches Sunday school? And the man said, yes, it is. And that man was Jimmy Carter. <laughs> so... Uh. Uh. So, and when they would go, when they would go to um, Atlanta for a week a month, because that's where the Carter Center is, when he wasn't on the road, he visited Africa and other parts of the world over and over and over again uh, when he was a former president. But when he was in Atlanta, he and Rosalind slept on a Murphy bed. And when they were in Africa, they, they often had the most bare accommodations imaginable. He was first putting Habitat for Humanity on the map. And by the way, he chaired the board of that, but he never ran Habitat. And people who think that was his main activity as a former president are under accounting for all of the other things he's accomplished. But they had mostly been working in Southwest Georgia, and they decided to do this project in New York. And Carter got on the overnight bus. He's a former president of the United States. He had to have a Secret Service guy with him, but he gets on with his neighbors and they ride overnight all the way from Southwest Georgia to New York City. And then they stay at this church right near the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel. And there was one separate room for 
the former president and first lady, you know, a private room, and everybody else was in the church dormitory working on this habitat project. But it turned out that there was a couple that was honeymooning working for Habitat, which is a religiously based organization, now the largest nonprofit builder of housing for the poor in the world at that time, very small. And Jimmy and Rosalind said, you you take the supper room. And they slept in the dorm. There was an article that about that project that was on the front page of the New York Times. And that's really what launched Habitat. We're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, Jonathan and I talk about what Jimmy Carter considered his greatest failure. Stay tuned. His failure to be stronger on civil rights. That was a huge revelation to me in your book. It's very important to understand that the great failure of Jimmy Carter's life, the great moral failure of his life, is that he ducked the civil rights movement until he was elected governor of Georgia because he could not be both outspoken on civil rights and a politician, as he readily admitted to me. He didn't like talking about it, but he readily acknowledged that he had never been a part of the civil rights movement, had never met Dr. King, but uh, after he was assassinated, became quite close to Daddy King and, and Coretta Scott King, and basically spent the second half of his life, Scott, making up for what he did not do in the first half of his life. And then I was impressed that the first opportunity he has to make a speech once he's elected governor, he moves to the right side of history. And that's who we remember. I don't think we that got a lot of publicity during the time that he was running for the presidency or while he was in the White House. I found all of that to be a revelation that I was getting for the first time from your book. So in 1963 and 1965, there were major what were called racial disturbances, but it was really white terrorism in America's Georgia, which is the county seat that he represented in the Georgia State Senate. We're talking here about a sheriff, Sheriff Chapel, who Dr. King described as, quote, the meanest man in the world, made Bull Connor look like a, a more reasonable figure. And this was somebody who, you know, Jimmy Carter, when he first met Andy Young, Andy Young was unfavorably impressed because Andy Young said, well, you know, you're from Sumter County, you know, Sheriff Chapel," And Carter said, he's, he's a friend of mine. And Young, who later went on to be Carter's uh, UN ambassador and um, really one of, it, one of his biggest boosters um, and, and believes that Jimmy Carter is a, a great man in many different respects. He had to come to terms with the fact that Carter had started out not as a segregationist, not as a, a racist like his father, but as somebody who was, you know, trapped in this system. And um, to make his way out politically, he had to, when he ran for governor, used dog whistles and code words to get elected. So he said nice things about George Wallace 
He went and paid a call on the founder of the White Citizens Council in Georgia, which sent a message to the segregationists that he was on their side. And then if I could tell you a quick story, uh, it's a kind of a ecumenical story. There was a guy who was a, a businessman who was a good friend of Carter's and arguably made him both governor of Georgia and president of the United States. And he was a Jewish businessman who gave Carter use of his Piper Cub to fly around Georgia, which is a pretty big mm -hmm. state. And Carter was way behind when he was first running in 1970 and needed this guy to get around the state. And on the last day of the campaign, when it was clear Carter was going to win, this businessman who was close to the King family um, and an, a strong integrationist was flying the plane. And, and Carter said, you know, you've done so much for me. Is there anything I can do for you? And he said, yes, you can write here on the back of this flight manual and say in your inaugural address, the time for racial discrimination is over. And Carter signed it. And then in his inaugural address as governor, he said it. And all of the white segregationists who had supported him in the campaign. He, had, he was a rural Georgian. He wasn't getting the black vote in Atlanta in that election or the moderate to liberal vote. He needed these people to get elected. And he they felt betrayed. They walked out of his inauguration and the black voters in attendance, they said, he said, what? They couldn't believe it because starting the next day, he began integrating Georgia state government and uh, he hung... Dr. King's portrait in the Georgia State Capitol and became the Jimmy Carter that we know. And he it wasn't like he changed. He was just waiting until he had power to do something. And he had actually said to Vernon Jordan before the election, watch what I do, not what I'm saying. And these are the kinds of, you know, compromises that politicians often have to make to achieve power. The last thing I want to ask you about is towards the end of his life, he breaks with the Southern Baptist Church that he'd been a part of all of his life. Was this a long time? Was this a long time simmering? Yes, it was a long time simmering. So as president, Carter was a strong believer in the separation of church and state, but he would do what he could for Christians around the world and arguably was the most successful missionary in world history. And let me just, I know that sounds like a shocking, crazy idea, but let me just explain why. And it sets up the, I think what can only be described as the betrayal by evangelical Christians of Jimmy Carter. In 1979, Carter normalizes relations with China. You have to understand, Nixon opened the door to China, but Carter walked through it. And at the time, China had the GDP of a sub-Saharan African nation. I was there just a few years later, and everybody was still on bicycles. So he and Deng Xiaoping signed this historic agreement. And on the last day of his visit, Deng Xiaoping says something 
very similar to what Carter said to the pilot in the story that I just told, which is basically, President Carter, you, you've done so much for us and for China. Is there anything I can do for you? And Jimmy Carter says, well, as a matter of fact, there is. Um, when I was a boy, I sent nickels every month to missionaries, to Baptist missionaries in China. If there's any way you could see to allowing missionaries, churches, Bibles into communist China, I think that would be a good thing for your people. And Deng Xiaoping says, well, let me think about it. And uh, this just comes from Carter. I have no confirmation of the story. But I found that Carter is, was not a liar. You know, when he promised that he wouldn't lie to the American people, he basically kept that promise. So even though he exaggerated certain stories, I think this one is true. And what Deng Xiaoping said to him was, I'm sorry, I cannot allow missionaries into China. At the turn of the century, they were not good to my people, uh, which is partly true. But I see no reason why Chinese people should not be allowed to read the Bible and go to church if they choose. And a couple of years later, when Carter was out of office, he returned to China and he saw that there have been all these you know, millions of Bibles that were printed by the Chinese government and churches that were not allowed to preach against the government, but were allowed to be Christian churches. Um, now uh, there are about 70 million Chinese Christians. And you know, before normalization, they were only practicing their faith in secret. So in the Department of No Good Deed Goes Unpunished, evangelicals, I think people remember people like Jerry Falwell, they had supported Jimmy Carter in 1976. In 1980, they moved en masse to Ronald Reagan, and they've become really the bulwark of the MAGA movement. Um, there are millions of Trump Republicans who are evangelical Christians. And in the 80s and 90s, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest religious organization in the United States, it moved hugely to the right. And it basically became an outgrowth of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. And they moved against women. And, you know, the Baptist tradition is very focused on local control. Local Baptist churches have historically in the United States had autonomy. And in the 90s, the Southern Baptist Convention started getting dictatorial and also imposing literal interpretations of the Bible on member churches. And the combination of their attitudes on women and on other um, denominational questions eventually led Carter to break with them. And around 20 years ago, he formally left and for the rest of his life described many of those in the SBC as, quote, Philistines, which to him was a real insult. Yeah. Jonathan Alter, every time I talk with you, I learn so much. And so I, I thank you so much for your time. I'd so much enjoyed his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. And thank you. Thanks, Scott. Pleasure being here. 
can, as as we speak, President Carter, he's in a hospice state. And because American history means so much to you, I want to know, what do you think his place in American history will be? Well, you know, I have, was asked this question a couple of weeks ago by Nicole Wallace when she interviewed me on the day before Carter had announced that he was doing that. And I just said, look, you know, this is John Quincy Adams went back into the House of Representatives and is arguably, you know, the most incredible post-presidency, but Carter has left everyone else in his dust. He reminded us, I told Nicole, uh, that the highest aspiration for a politician is to become president. His was to become a human being. And he did that. And I think that his piece right now is, is I'm, I'm curious about that. And I, and I wish particularly at a moment that must be so difficult as the family comes around and, and the well wishes are, are, are coming in and there's a protective bubble around him that, that there was a way to, maybe he will leave us the last lessons, but he's a remarkable, remarkable human being. He had a, a fraught presidency, but a lot of it was just people's not knowing a, a, a kind of an urban dynamic in Washington that couldn't deal with a rural person, a northern dynamic that couldn't deal with a southerner, somebody who was a man of faith who couldn't deal with that faith. And so it it sort of compounded the misfortunes and, and mistakes that everybody makes. So I, I think we'll look back on his presidency with a kinder light, but nothing can take anything away from uh, the exemplary life and example that he's lived since the presidency. How do you feel today about the state of our republic? Oh, it's pretty scary. It's where we're like teetering. It's like a old silent comedy thing, only it's not funny that we're on the brink of a, of a precipice of our own making. The divisions are so, so deep and the disinformation and the lying so sort of used to the ability to shame impossible. And so the three great crises that preceded this one, the Civil War, the Depression and the Second World War, none of them really in some ways upset the balance of the free and fair elections, the peaceful transfer of power and independent judiciary. Now, there's been disinformation been going on for as long as human beings have been around. People have been lying, but we're in a particularly thick moment and it requires sort of engagement and it requires people to get involved and to to trust, you know, each other, which is, is really hard. I mean, it's uh, so many things are in flux right now. We, we've got a lot of work to do to pull out of this one. Well, a first step to getting involved is seeing your work, which wakes the dead <laughs> for an often amnesiac society that needs to be reminded of both the high points and and the low points of it of its history that we might fulfill our promise in the present and future amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now am found 
was blind, but now I see. Email me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com and follow us on social media at yegodspodcast. Thank you for listening.